The soul from purgatory springs. This is what one John Tetzel preached to people gathered in the center of a town, Wittenberg, Germany, almost 500 years ago. His charge was to go and sell letters of indulgence. Now, according to one Roman Catholic dictionary of theology, uh, an indulgence is uh, for the dead is gained by the intercession of the church, where the church offers satisfaction from her treasury of merits and asks God to apply this to the soul of the departed in purgatory, thus releasing that soul from the torment inflicted on them for their sins on earth. So an indulgence fundamentally is a a permission to release from sin. It's a remission of the penalty of sin. Well, Tetzel had been commissioned to sell just such indulgences, such remissions for the living and for the dead in order to fund the rebuilding of St. Peter's in Rome. Well, this was too much for one monk in the town. So on October 31st, 1517, in accordance with the practice at the time, uh, this monk posted some statements for debate uh, on the treasury, on the door of the church in the castle in the town, right in the middle. What was not normal was the tone of the statements that he posted. They were angry and crisp, bold and unqualified. He sharply questioned the need to spend the money of people, many of whom were poor, to rebuild St. Peter's in opulence. He questioned the Pope's power over departed souls in purgatory. And finally, he attacked the whole practice of indulgences. Peace with God, he said, not, comes not through a letter of indulgence, but in the word of Christ through faith, through believing the gospel. People had long complained of the money-making ways of the church, but to suggest that selling indulgences like this was blasphemous, well, that was an attack on the authority of the church as precisely placed as was David's stone in Goliath's forehead. People had long complained, as I say, but this monk took up no campaign to popularize his ideas and his criticisms. He had merely, as I say, invited debate in the usual way, in posting these on the door, even if the topics were unusual. But others took his theses and translated them into German and spread them about the whole country, and they soon became the talk of everyone. Did you hear what this monk is saying? He's criticizing the church. He's saying the church has no authority to forgive our sins themselves. And so this monk, Martin Luther, had become unintentionally the cause of one of the greatest storms ever to overtake Europe, the Reformation. He was, as it has been said, like a man climbing in the darkness, the winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, as he climbs, he reached out to steady himself and his hand laid hold of a rope. Immediately he was startled to hear a loud ringing, and he realized that he had grasped hold of the bell pull. So Luther had stumbled on to a fundamental criticism of the way Christianity had been understood for centuries in Western Europe. Well, for months and years thereafter, Luther studied scripture and preached and wrote about our salvation and justification coming through no good works of our own, coming through no letters of indulgence bought from the church, or anything good in us, anything that we would do even to cooperate with God's grace, 
but through faith and through faith alone. And this has been the watchword of the Reformation, the anniversary of which is this week. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? Well, at the center of the Reformation was something that I think has been at the heart of the center of human concern for centuries, long before the Reformation, and for people who have no concern whatsoever about Martin Luther, and that is faith. What is real faith? What is true, saving faith? Some years ago, Frank Sinatra spoke about his understanding of faith. I quote him. First, I believe in you and me. I'm like Albert Schweitzer, Bertrand Russell, and Albert Einstein, in that I have respect for life in any form. I believe in nature, in the birds, in the sky, in everything I can see or there's real evidence for. If these things are what you mean by God, then I believe in God. But I don't believe in a personal God to whom I look for comfort or for a natural on the next roll of the dice. I'm not unmindful of man's seeming need for faith. I'm for anything that gets you through the night, be it prayer, tranquilizers, or a bottle of Jack Daniels. Well, people have had all kinds of ideas about faith. What is sufficient, what is saving faith that will, as he says, get you through? Some people have seemed to equate faith with positive thinking or with wishful thinking. Others have seemed to think that faith is a kind of set of beliefs. Still others, that it's a living with uncertainty as if something were true, even though we may not really think that it is. Some feel that faith is a sort of inherited worldview, a framework that you look at things through. Others would say that it's as individual as each person, something that's deeply personal. I think one thing that it's fair to say that most people assume about faith is that faith is, well, it's invisible. It's nothing that we can look around here and see. It's not an object hanging in this room. It's not, it's not something that we handle with our hands. In that sense, faith can't be seen. It's something which is deep inside us, deep down, something that we ourselves maybe sincerely feel or think. What do you think? What do you think faith is? There's an obvious way, of course, in which it's true that, that faith involves our thinking. I mean, faith, belief, must include those things that we believe or that we think. There's no question about that. Much of belief is tied up with thinking thoughts. In our recent study of 1 Timothy, we've thought a lot about how it's important that the things that we teach and believe be true. So certainly it involves thinking thoughts. And yet... The letter of James, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings, has some more important additional information for us here. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. As we try to understand what is this faith, this biblical picture of faith. If you look with me in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. It's on page 1,226 in your pew Bible. If you're here regularly, you know that you need to open that Bible and follow me along. If you're visiting with us today, you'll be surprised how much you'll be helped through this next half hour or more if, uh, <laughs> if your Bible is open in front of you and you're helped to see what we're talking about. 
page 1,226, James chapter 1, verse 19. Let's see what James teaches us about what faith really is. He says here three things in chapters 1 and 2. In the second half of chapter 1, James tells us positively that accepting the word means doing it. In the first half of chapter 2, he gives an example of this. And then in the second half of chapter 2, he refines his point about accepting means doing. And speaking of faith negatively, he says that not doing really means not believing. First, James tells us positively that accepting the word means doing it. Look at verse 19 in chapter 1. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, from this it's clear that if we're to accept the word, uh, that means more than we may often think it does. James tells us here that accepting the word means doing it. So, for instance, in the first couple of verses, verses 19 and 20, James makes it clear that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So James tells them specifically and very practically to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In the next verses, James even seems to sort of recap what Jesus said when he came preaching, repent and believe. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. As Luther said in his lectures on the Romans, only a humble man can accept the word of God. We can sit in here, but to really accept it as something that challenges us and cuts across us, well, there only a humble man can do that. That is, our being willing to get rid, as he says here, is the necessary humility that we have to have in order to truly accept the word. And James gives two warnings here about this rather slippery matter of what it means to accept the word or to have faith. He warns us that accepting means doing and that it is confusing to try to think otherwise. Look at verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. I mean, did you ever think of listening to a sermon or a Bible study as potentially deceptive? That's what he's saying here. Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So hearing without doing is 
confusing and potentially self-deceiving. Frankly, it's dangerous. If, if we're not careful, we can end up deceiving ourselves. As we hear something said and then explained, and we have a sense of satisfaction in understanding it in our minds, we can almost begin to mistake that virtual 3D model in our minds for the real thing in our lives. That's what James is warning against here. We can end up like this man in verse 26 who considers himself religious and yet who's simply on the road to deceiving himself. We can tell by the way he is with his tongue. His undisciplined tongue speaks of a lack of humility in his heart. He hasn't accepted the word of God. So we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. The first sermon I ever preached in this church was on that, back in July of 93 when I was across from England. Remember the parable of the sower that Jesus taught? in which everyone in that parable hears the word. And most of them seem to accept it in some sense. But the way James is talking about accepting the word here, that is savingly. It's only those whose lives it penetrates and in whose lives it brings fruit. This is Paul's argument in Romans 2 and 3 about what the Jews had done with the Old Testament law. They possessed it, and so possessing it, they thought they were possessed by it. But they weren't. Their hearts show that they weren't. So notice that all of this is being written to those who listen. That's people like us. This isn't being written fundamentally to those walking around outside today. This is being written to those of us who listen to God's word. And it's a warning. It's a warning that listening can be a confusing activity. We may think we've got it simply because we have a mental grasp on it. But I can tell you as a speaker and pastor that I can look at your face and see your expression, and I cannot tell, regardless of how welcoming or convicted or interested your face looks, I cannot tell by the expression on your face the Word of God has found a home in you, like I can tell by the experience of your life. That is the proof that the Word of God has found a home in our hearts. Accepting the word, James says, means doing it. And it is pointless, he warns, to think otherwise because what does it say God desires there in verses 19 and 20? It's a righteous life. He does, God doesn't simply desire professions of truth or orthodox doctrine, though those are necessary and they're assumed in this letter. A lot of the problems people have between James and Paul are, I think, because they forget James is assuming the great truths of the gospel that Paul talks about. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James assumes all that. But he's making the point here that God is not after simply our thinking. A religion or a faith that is believed but not lived, James says in verse 26, it's worthless. Verse 27, it's unacceptable to God. So we shouldn't just come to church and let it go in one ear and out the other. Or even let it simply go in one ear and stay there. It's good that you remember. But no, what James is saying here, we should retain it and then let it come out our ears and our listening. And our mouth and our words. And our hands and our actions. That's what visible faith looks like. Verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. Not forgetting what he has heard, and then he doesn't contrast not forgetting with remembering, but he says not forgetting there in verse 25, but doing it. 
He will be blessed in what he does. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The purpose of the word heard is to be the word done. But James wants to make sure they understand this, so he gives them next a specific example in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But... If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The specific application that James makes of this point is to favoritism, to treating people differently simply on the basis of externals like wealth and appearance. This was an example of, a, of the word that they had heard and that therefore they needed to live out. And to be specific... The word they had heard is what James cites here in chapter 2, verse 8. You see that? Love your neighbor as yourself. James is quoting the Old Testament there. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the Old Testament. That's an example to them of the word that they as believers claim to have heard. Now, it's good to know the word. It's commendable that they've listened to it for them. It's commendable that they even maintained and accepted it as the word of God. But in order to really accept it, says James, as he's been talking about here, this word that they've heard and known, they have to be able to obey. This royal law, as James calls it here, makes no sense unless it is obeyed. The royal law of God's word here never makes any sense unless it's obeyed. But particularly here, after all, this command is about loving what on earth does it mean to accept the word of God about loving and then just to leave it in your head and not live it out? Makes no sense whatsoever. And so James here emphasizes, especially in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, especially as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ should be livers, livers out of the truth of God as people who have known God's love. Of, of all people, we should know better, we should live better than to judge people on the basis of externals like wealth. 
Because God sent out no financial application forms for your entry into the kingdom of heaven. There was nothing like that there. That isn't the way God has treated us. So James is saying here that this is no objection to, uh, to being welcoming and kind simply because someone doesn't like the way you look. He certainly isn't calling them to be rich to rude people, uh, or rude to rich people, I think. But what he's saying is that their behavior toward people should not be determined at all by what the person looks like. Such favoritism, he says, is inappropriate. It's inappropriate for us to judge people that God has made on the basis of poor externals like wealth or appearance. Because at most, those things are like the glories of the flower in chapter 1. They're, they're passing, like the petals of a flower. How foolish to take something that God has made and to regard it like that. After all, if we were going to be like that, what kind of witness would we give Jesus if he came in? What kind of externals, what kind of fine clothes and gold rings did he have that would commend him to our attention? So, what do you mean, James is saying, if you've heard of God's concern for people, regardless of their financial means or their appearance, what do you mean that you've heard that if you don't reflect it in your own life? Well, the situation in James's church was clearly pressing on them. And James, like a good pastor, speaks of it very directly, hitting them where it hurts. This word of loving neighbors as ourselves that they said they accepted may not have been quite so easy as they had imagined. But, you know, I don't know about you, but when feeling convicted of something in particular, one strategy that we can have in order to deflect that conviction, once God seems to have won the point with us that, yes, this is in fact wrong, it's always to go, well, yes, but it's not that important. Okay, good point, Lord. I give up. You're right on this one. However, in the big picture, this is not really that significant. Well, it seems like James knew that they might go there. And so he says in verse 9, If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So you see, James says, since the whole word of God flows from his authority, for you to feel that you have the right to deny any of it is to deny God's authority. You have no right to pick and choose through this to decide what you will believe and obey. This is why, as a pastor, I practice expositional preaching. I try to go through books of the Bible. I don't try to simply pick and choose those things which most impress me or which I'm thinking about at that moment. But I think that, as a pastor, I am obliged to help us all think about whatever it is that God has revealed. That's the importance of trying to study Scripture individually and together so that we as a church can have our minds conformed to the mind of God. That's the importance of having good relationships in a church. So that we can know and be known and not be let off the hook. Because we just turn up at a large meeting of two or three hundred people once a week and nobody really knows us. So we can hear the word and we can take some contentment in hearing the word. But nobody will ever really know how it is that we're living that out. Now that's the challenge that remains with each one of us. To integrate ourselves into a body. Because our lives indicate our loves. And for our own soul's sake, we need those loves to be known.
That's James's final point here in the second half of chapter 2. To make this as clear as possible, I think, James speaks of faith negatively, saying that negatively, not doing means not believing. So he says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has not deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, James here is saying in the second half of chapter 2, sort of the same thing he said in the second half of chapter 1. Only he's putting an even finer point on it, particularly for the people who claim to believe but who do not show it by their deeds. Remember, he's not writing to unbelievers, advising them to save themselves by works. There's none of that here. No, he's writing to church, to people who, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, claim to be believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Or as it says here in verse 14 of chapter 2, claims to have faith. James is speaking to people who already assume that they possess saving faith. A room full of people like that. And what he's saying here is to help them in ferreting out counterfeits, particularly in their own hearts. He first gives a warning. He says, be careful. There is such a thing as a faith that is useless and dead. And that is faith which is not acted out. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has not deeds? Can such faith save him? The implied answer to that is no. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. And then he asks the same question again. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, that kind of faith, that by itself kind of faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, notice that James is not saying that works make faith. That if you feel this morning you don't have faith, you need to go out and do some works. You know, clothe some people, feed some people, and that will give you saving faith. No, James isn't saying that at all. He is saying, for example, in verse 18, 
that our deeds show our faith. They demonstrate it. They make it evident. And any claimed faith which is deedless, he says, is useless. What good is it? What good is it? He even calls it dead. And to prove the point, he gives three examples of this necessary connection between believing and doing. Uh, the, the first one, James says in verse 19, is, is of that kind of knowing which some of these people may have been claiming wasn't unheard of, James is saying. We've heard of this kind of faith, this believing, but doesn't show itself out in acting. It's in the Bible. It's the faith that characterizes the demons. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. They were sincere. They really believed there was one God in one sense. They shuddered. Uh, this is a word used by those who worship Greek gods, who uh, had a particular experience as they experienced the mysterious power of the divine. They shuddered like this. So here are some people who believe this mentally and even shudder, have a religious experience out of it. But James says this is not true faith. No. This is not saving faith. No. He gives another example for that. This invisible faith, says James, is dead faith. But on the other hand, look at Abraham, the father of the faithful, and see how his faith was made complete by what he did. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. James is taking the very paragon of faith in the Old Testament. In case there's anybody who's trying to hide behind Abraham. And saying, oh, Abraham was saved by his faith, so we're fine. Just having faith with no actions. Because Abraham was saved by his faith. And James says, no, would you look at Abraham? His faith showed itself by his actions. It was made complete, as he puts it here. It came to fruition in his actions. Abraham's actions didn't show his obedience to be perfect. They showed his faith, which God accounted to him as righteousness. So James says that a person who wants to be justified must be justified by active, visible faith. Not by that faith which is alone, which has no works. That's not real faith, he says. That's demonic. And then just to make sure they can't get out of it by saying, okay, well, that's Abraham, who is the most holy of all people. You've chosen, okay, you, you, you kind of skewed the deck there. I mean, you said it in a way that we really couldn't say anything against it. James then runs to pick the most unholy example of faith in the Old Testament. Rahab, the prostitute. The opposite of Abraham. She's a Gentile, an outcast. And yet she, James says, was saved by faith, but her faith too was completed by what she did. It showed itself. It gave evidence. It became visible when she gave lodging, as we see in verse 25, to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So faith shows itself by actions in all of those with true faith, from the most obviously virtuous, like Abraham, to the most questionable backgrounds, like that of Rahab's. As James says in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. His point is clear. That the, like the separation of the spirit from the body, 
The separation of faith from deeds is a very unnatural and deadly separation of two things which were meant for each other. And you only separate them if you're willing that they should die. So, he says, faith without deeds is dead. I think I've told you before the story, but it was so long ago and so many of you are new, you probably haven't heard it, at least from me, of the uh, glass skyscraper, when the skyscrapers were first made with the glass sides, and uh, the story of this one in, in New York where the workers in the office were actually quite scared when they first moved into their new offices. And the desk that they had right over next to this glass, 30 stories up, just terrified them as they looked down. And so this actually became a problem in the office as the people would move their desks over and crowd up and people couldn't get along very well because there wasn't enough space. Well, it kept being such a problem that the office manager called up the building manager and asked him to do something about this. Well, the building manager came up and tried to talk to them and tell them, look, it's fine. We've had this tested. We've, this is made by the uh, engineers who've made all these buildings around the city. They know exactly what they're doing. And, and still, all of his words couldn't calm them. So they got in the architect to actually come and talk to them about the stresses and the strains and explain it. So the architect came, gathered all the employees together, talked to them about this, talked them about how, I know it looks strange, but it's actually perfectly safe, explained it to them, took questions and answers. And then at the end of it, he could tell they were still terrified of being anywhere near those glass walls that then went down, it seemed like, just 30 stories right outside. So the architect encouraged everybody just to move over to the side, and he walked back to the door in the middle of the building. And then he turned and with his full speed ran toward the glass. And he threw himself against the glass until he hit it and bounced off. Now that's faith. <laughs> he had to know that it could support him. But that's not all. It had to actually support him. He went and he rested his whole life against that glass. See, the problem that we have here in church is we come on a Sunday and we hear something and we think we understand it and we gain sometimes a modicum of satisfaction over experiencing and knowing that. But that can be really, really dangerous if we don't do it, if we don't live it out. The problem with our words faith and believe in English is they just don't convey this. They, they sound more like what we do with opinion polls. Do you believe such and such product is better? And it doesn't really matter to you and what's going on in your house. Do you believe so and so will win a certain race or that you'll vote for them? Well, again, that's not crucial for many people. It's an opinion we feel. But that word believe and faith in the Bible is different than that. It means believe and rely on, cling to, trust in. That's what biblical faith is. You know, James had told them in chapter 1 that we thought about last week that trials are for good purposes. Now you see he's telling them here in the second half of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that this faith that we profess has to be lived out. And he's warning them that even when it's difficult, don't avoid it. Even when it's difficult, realize that part of being a Christian is living out your faith. It's showing it. So faith isn't only what we think. It shows itself in what we do. True faith is always visible faith. And that's since James seems like he's from Missouri. You know, he wants to be shown this faith. He wants to be able to see it. 
He wants to have a faith that shows itself. So Luther, I think, was right that we are saved through faith alone. But he's also right in following James and Paul and our Lord Jesus in teaching that the faith through which alone God saves us will never be alone. The faith that God uses to save us will never be alone. Now, as the very last thing I want to say in this sermon, can I tell you a way you can misuse this? You can misuse this as an encouragement to legalism. You've heard how important actions are. You've heard how important living right is. And so you decide, right, I'm going to resolve now to go live right. It just sort of whips us into obedience. But I don't think that's what this passage of James is meant to do. This passage isn't meant to be a whip, but a meter. It is meant to measure. Perhaps an alarm to awake. Because this is particularly directed to a group of people who are Christians. Who claim they are, who think they are, but are not. Claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can such faith save him? The answer is no. Now, even mentioning this always surprises some people. It startles others. It upsets some. I I often hear about it when I mention something like this. But this is exactly the reason why James penned this section. It is for groups of people who say they have faith, who think sincerely they have faith, but in fact, they do not. Some people, you know, say they're saved. And they stick to it. And they've been taught that it's wrong to doubt it. But they have no reason to encourage them to be so confident. As Spurgeon said, there is a great difference between presumption and full assurance. Full assurance is reasonable. It is based on solid ground. Presumption takes for granted with a brazen face, pronounces that to be its own, to which it has no right whatever. Friend, as your pastor, let me simply exhort you to beware of simply assuming that you are saved. If you are trusting Jesus in your heart fully, then you are saved. And it will show itself in your life. But if you merely say, I trust in Jesus, you have to hear what James is saying here. This does not save you. The mere saying of that does not save you. It is not a mantra that will transport you into heaven. If your heart is really renewed and if you hate the things you once loved and love the things that you once hated, then if there's a a thorough change of mind like that, then you've been born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there is no vital change, if there's been no inward godliness or transformation, if there's no love to God or love for prayer, if there's no work of the Holy Spirit, if there's no good thing coming out of your faith that makes your faith visible and you are simply saying... I am saved, then I fear that's nothing but your own idea. And if you've heard what James has said here this morning, you must know that such a lonely assertion may deceive, but it will not deliver you. Our prayer ought to be, O Lord, bless me with real faith, with real salvation, with the trust in Jesus that is the essence of true, living, acting faith. And preserve us, Lord, from imaginary blessings. Teach us the truth. So be careful of invisible faith. Any kind of Christianity which you have concocted, which is based solely on a claim, but which is otherwise invisible, 
James is saying that is no true faith. It is no true Christianity. I don't care if you do it in the name of Reformed theology or the Reformation. It is no true Christianity. Such faith, he says, cannot save. Invisible faith is imaginary faith. Accepting the word means doing it. Truly believing means acting. Real faith is visible. Let's pray together. Lord, for some here this morning, these words are strange and new. We pray that for them, Lord, your truth would be clear, that your holiness would bear in upon their souls and they would sense themselves to be in your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us of your grace, of the forgiveness that you do offer for sins by faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have long heard words like this, so long, in fact, that our ears become deaf to them, we pray that your spirit would cause something to pierce us, that these words would act as the measuring instrument they're meant to act as, and that we would be able to see with your spirit's help whether or not we have this true faith that shows itself by works. Father, we know, many of us to our own pain, that we're not perfect. And yet, Lord, we pray that in your mercy and grace and goodness, you would show us the truth about ourselves. If you are active in us, Lord, make us certain of it and make it obvious by the good fruit in our lives that's born toward our, in our love to you and to others. Father, we thank you for the fact that you're not about an imaginary religion, that you have no concern with simply teaching us to have escapist thinking or wish fulfillment or projection of our desires, but that you mean to get into our lives and to change us to your glory. Father, do that, we pray. We pray you would do that in a way to make yourself known. And so, Lord, get honor to yourself through our lives, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.